0: Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast, by guitarists for guitarists, and now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast, and thank you so much for listening. We've now recorded over 25 episodes with some of the best guitarists in the world, and we don't plan on slowing down. We're so stoked that you're enjoying the topics we are covering. Please share us with your friends and give us a tag. You can find me on Instagram at Brown Monuments. That's B R O W N E M O N U M E N T S. And A R Levy. And that's at A R Levy U R M Audio. That's E Y A L L E V I U R M A U D I O. If you want to give us a review, then we especially love iTunes reviews. We will never charge you for this podcast. All we ask is that you give us a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it.
0: Hello, everybody. Our guest today is Jen Majura, who is the guitarist for Evanescence, a band you guys have all heard of. She also has a very active solo career and is an avid multi-instrumentalist. I present to you Jen Majura. Okay, so Jen Majura, welcome to the Riff Hard podcast. Thank you for being here.
2: Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Hello, Jen. Hello. So, how
0: did you guys meet? Uh, Forty-two Gear Street. What's Forty-two Gear Street? Yeah, do you know that crazy
1: German called Henning Pauly? He's, uh, yeah, he's. It's a YouTube channel, HP Forty Two. In it, you'd think it'd be spelled with a H and a P, but it's not. It's like E Y T P S C H or something Forty Two.
2: It's literally the German way of spelling H, so E Y T S C H, and then capital P I. And then 42, because that's his uh, apartment house number,
1: right? Yeah, um, like the past two years, he's had like an event there where he just gets a bunch of companies um, to come and exhibit their gear and then a load of YouTubers do videos. It's kind of a bit like uh, Toman's Gear University or whatever it's called. How many people show up? It's invite only. So there was what? Was it like 30 of us, Jen? 16 to 30?
2: Well, when you say 30 of us, it's like, you know, I was the only artist. I, expect, I, I was expecting back in the days that Henning would invite some more artists. But I'm like, okay, who else is here? And he's like, you. <laughs> I said, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, what? So I don't know. Henning and I have a beautiful friendship. And uh, I think the craziest thing that he's ever done to me was that seven-hour live stream.
1: Ah, uh, yes.
2: I did not know that he meant like literally record and write and do it. An entire production, and it took us seven hours. It's still out there, and it's my God. And and can you even believe there were people like totally listening and watching that? I do believe it for seven hours. Jeez,
0: people watch
1: Jersey Shore.
0: I do believe it because I do one. I've done one every single month for the past five years with a, uh, with Nail the Mix, and they go from seven hours all the way up to twelve hours, and uh, people watch the whole thing. <laughs>
2: that is insanity.
0: Yeah, it hurts. I, <laughs> it
2: hurts. I needed like three days to recover from that. So,
0: what do you think is so hard about it? Because I think a lot of people don't realize that streaming takes a lot out of you. Because it's not like it's not like
2: you're on stage. If you you have a certain, well, at least I do have a certain kind of like self awareness. How do you sit? How do you move? Don't put your index finger into your nostrils. Don't do this. You know, don't do that. <laughs> and all of that little things combined are. They're just exhausting. It's the same thing like you do a photo shoot. It's not just standing there and getting your picture taken. You have to like be aware of which muscles to move and blah, 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 blah. Being live is just very physically demanding. Plus, I mean, I I don't even want to talk about the pressure that people would watch me and expect lyrics to come out of my so creative Corona brain. You know, it's like it's it's not easy and all of that and then in the middle of the night it was i think it was midnight when he was like okay great now let's sing and i'm like are you fucking shitting me really <laughs> i sing now but <laughs> 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 i needed 3 days to recover from that because it's just been it's just been so physically demanding to be live for 7 hours
1: i think it's also just the fact that people you know that people are just watching everything that you're doing Yep, yep. Yeah, and it's... uh, Because I I do a live stream at Riff Hard three times a month that involves me having to write music. It's incredibly stressful just because you don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So seven hours. And also, yeah, seven hours with Henning.
0: (laughs) I love you, Henning. But when you're on stage, you don't know what's going to happen either.
2: Yeah, but it's a different kind of energy.
0: Like, you know,
1: when you're on stage, you know that you're going to play this set list in this order. Most of the times. But when you're on live stream writing music you don't know what's going to happen
2: exactly it's it's the unpredictable it's it's that moment of you being forced to be creative right now like because right now your life you know now you have to be functioning now you have to be creative and that's like the pressure point where i'm like really uncomfortable but i i, I mean seriously all i did with the lyrics for that one song it's like i wrote a song about cowbell <laughs> just because everybody hates cowbells and <laughs> like we need more cowbell i want my cowbell Can you give me that cowbell that was the whole song and um the verses were literally what happened that day just to show how much this life is it's not like oh well you know i had a couple of hours to prepare the lyrics here they are it's more like well i drove south i didn't know what to expect then i saw a truck on his side because there was a truck burning i, I sang about all that And then I got to that place and Henning tells me to write that song and I didn't know what to expect, blah, blah, blah. blah. So the lyrics have been like really in that moment. And that was kind of like, it was fun. But ever since then, whenever we chat and send texts back and forth, he's like, hey, let's do it again. And I'm like, nope.
0: (laughs) So it's a type of pressure that you're not cool with, basically.
2: I can be cool with it. The the question is, will I put myself into the situation again to deal with it? And as long as I'm conscious, I'd say no.
0: But what's interesting to me is that to do what you do for a living, you need to be cool with some sort of pressure, like adapted to it, because there's no way that you couldn't have a longstanding touring career without being somewhat adapted to pressure that would make most people fold.
2: It all comes down to the definition of what pressure is or how you handle different types of pressure. If I know I'm going to be gone for like, let's say two and a half months for a U.S. tour or whatever, that's not pressure that used to be. I mean, mine is 2020, but that used to be my life. And that's not considered as something negative. You know, it's just like, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to this being exhausted, the traveling, the meeting people, the, the exhaustion after the show, the adrenaline before the show. That is something, All the whole package is something positive that I look forward to. But with that unpredictable live stream for who knows how long it takes, that is just a pressure that I'm not comfortable with.
0: So have you heard of the, the definition of you stress versus stress? You stress is the idea that uh, there are certain types of stress that are actually good for you. Positive yeah.
2: stress, exactly. And that's yeah. that's touring, that's playing shows, that's this interview. No, I'm kidding. <laughs>
0: it's a conversation.
2: <laughs> I, I really think you have to define positive and demanding, you know, that sort of stress that exhausts you. It's a complete different thing because I, I realized like me as a person, I, I function very well when I am um, demanded to do stuff or I am demanded to be functioning that is when I I am at my best performance because there's a purpose for me working there's a purpose for me like functioning and uh, that's why this year 2020 is so super fucking hard for me because I'm just sitting at home (laughs) it's like so many others and it doesn't matter with who you talk like everybody's close to a nervous breakdown it's just because the last time I remember I was longer at home I was at home for like two months the last time, I would say, 16 years ago. And now out of a sudden, all that I'm doing is being at home. I feel wrong. <laughs> I just feel wrong and and kind of like useless. And then you go like, whoa, man, I've been complaining on tour all the time. Like, I wish I had more time to practice my instrument. now I have all that time. But the problem is what I figured out and... Um, I realized like a lot of my colleagues think the same. It's you miss your input. You know, if if your couch is your only input, what are you going to write? Oh, the couch blues, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if there is no input. There's nothing happening. So you don't have any output to create. And I am the type of person when I sit down and, and start to write, uh, like no matter what it is, if, it, if it's like Evanescence style or if it's like solo style or instrumental or classical or a cappella, I don't know what. But when I try to do that and I come up with nothing or nothing satisfying, like nothing you know, if it's all meatless and not cool enough, I get so aggressive. That is the moment when I am like, you don't want to meet me when I'm pissed at myself because I I can't create that. That's the worst. <laughs> it's really the
0: worst. But has never happened in, during like normal tour season? Like you've never had writer's block or written stuff that you deem unsatisfying like it can't be that this is the first time it's ever happened
2: so it comes down to to my second solo album in um i forced myself literally daily to come up with a song or at least one song in two three days and i kept writing and you know the typical thing what we musicians do is we write we're gonna go like well oh, this is amazing and then you finish it and you go like this is the best song i've ever written then you go to bed the next morning, you re-listen, go back to your project, and then you go like, "Nah, eh, I can do better.
0: Yeah, not so great.
2: Right? This is the, the normal, you know, the normal curve of being creative. And so I did that, and I, I, I said to myself, I'm, I'm going to keep writing until I have 12, 13, 14, who knows how many great songs. But the problem with that technique is if you keep going like that, every morning you go like, nah, I can do better. Nah, I can do better. Nah, I can write a better song than that. And you'll just end up with a bunch of songs. And it's just you lose the objective perspective for the whole thing because you're so inside of your head, like, I have to write, I have to write, I have to write. And what I did was um, after I had like close to 50 songs, I'm like, wait a minute, this is not working out. I'm going to write until I'm 60 and then I'm going to have like 2,487 songs. It doesn't work like that. So I just stopped, didn't listen to the songs. And then I think two, three months later, I revisit the entire output from that time and I figure it out. And it was so clear to me then. I'm like, oh, yeah, that one is going to be on the, No, that one, not so much, but that one's going to be on the album, and that one. And then I had my album. So, um, the writer's block is something that can happen, but I believe when you are, when you have that creative core inside of your system, I believe it's always possible to create, even just by like singing one note, you create the problem is your own demands, what you expect from yourself to create, what, what are you expecting to it to be like, And that is the biggest problem because at least for me, like the older I get, the higher the demands are. So the easier it is for me to go like, nah, this shit, I I don't like this.
0: It's self-torture. But you know what, though? I think it's a double-edged sword. I really do. Because, um, well, here's why. And I've thought about this a lot because I torture myself all the time. When I was writing music, but also now in business, like how to do better? Or are we doing as well as same kinds of questions? Because I think being an entrepreneur is the same thing as being an artist. Like you're creating things that didn't exist before and you're using your, you're using your creativity and then you're using your street smarts and understanding of the world you're in to get it into the world. So anyways, it's a very, there's a lot of parallels and I've always tortured myself. And I know a lot of people who tell me that I do that too much. It would just chill out. To relax. You're doing great. Like but it's never people who I look up to, okay? So the people who I look up to who are doing great never ever ever tell me to stop doing that. It's only people who it's I'm not saying I look down on them. I don't look down on them. I don't care if they are wired like me, but it's people who don't have this drive who are telling me to chill out. So that's telling me they don't quite get it. And uh they don't quite get it cuz they're not wired like this. And I think that if you want to achieve great things, and that's, it's like in you to do that, you're wired that way and there's no changing it. And that torture is what's going to propel you to keep going and try to get better and better. But the price you pay for creating things that are better and better and better is that you have to deal with that voice. And I think that the moment you actually turn that voice off, that's the moment you stop trying to get better and better and better. So it's like, it goes together. I feel like you can't have one without the other. I don't I don't know of a single person who just creates great things and is, like, not tortured. I don't know a single one.
2: It has to deal with, I, I know of one guitar player.
0: You found you found the one?
2: I don't, I don't want to mention any names, but he's kind of like that guy. He keeps writing and writing and writing. So he sets, like, his tempo, and uh, he would collect a bunch of different riffs and then revisit the next day and create more riffs in that same key with the same, you know, and he would, like, I don't know it's it's like putting bricks together. It's not the musical creative flow of writing. It's more like a mathematical kind of like okay, now I got four bars of this, now I need eight bars of that and if you construct music like that.
0: It's like a craft.
2: Exactly. You you do not have that emotional attachment to what you're creatively doing. It's more like I'm constructing something like I'm baking a bread or I'm I'm I don't know, I'm building a gingerbread house. <laughs> this is this is more like this constructive kind of like work, then you can create and create and create and create. And you will never, ever face these demons because you're always going to create because the value of what you create is not so important. It's more important, like the focus is on that you create, you know, and that these kind of people will probably not face these inner demons demons of feeling like, ah, oh, I don't have anything to say anymore. Ah, oh, I don't have anything to learn anymore. Ah, oh, I don't have anything to grow anymore. Because they think they create, that's why they're great.
0: It does. I consider the, that type to be more like craftsmen than artists. We need both in this world. Because I think they, there's a great partnership in this world between both those personality types. But yeah, I've the craftsmen I know are not tortured souls. It's only the artist types.
2: <laughs> yeah. Most of us artists are like that, and that's beautiful.
1: I'd probably say that the the people that I notice that are more like craftsmen when it comes to creating music are the ones that write music for stuff like games, or they're on really strict sort of deadlines.
2: Well, but come on, Evanescence wrote, Nah, we didn't write. We uh, recorded a Fleetwood Mac cover called The Chain for Gears 5. That was my second contact with gaming music, and that's a giant industry. But also, think about these uh, people like um, who create, like I don't know, commercial background jingles and music like that. They just poop out product, but it's not emotional, you know. It's it's like I think what really makes it so difficult for artists to uh, deal with writer's block is when you have that emotional connection to what you try to create. That is the most difficult thing. If you don't have an emotional connection to what you produce, and and your output is just being a product, then it's completely easy. And those people never, I
0: don't, I don't think they struggle. But that's not to sell them short, because then you've got freaks like Mick Gordon. Uh, he doesn't do the Doom soundtrack anymore, but uh, but I had him on the on my other podcast a few times during the. While he was doing the doom stuff, his music is full of fire. But he still fits that criteria, though, of like doing it as a
2: craft. Yes, but he, I wouldn't put him in the same box. He's kind of in his own. He's he's his own box. He's like such an artist, such a creative spirit, and it's. I wouldn't put him into the same box. Like for example, the guy who wrote for I don't know.
0: What was that? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I know. Yeah. I know what you, I know what that was. Yeah.
2: You know it, right? t yeah. Like, yeah. Oh,
1: okay. It's like a German advert or like, think about, you know, like just think about a soap opera in your country, al uh, like Jersey Shore or something, which I know you've heard the theme. Or the Hot to.
0: Pockets song. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. I actually think that that category of artists and craftsmen needs to be split even maybe one more, because then you have the people that just seem to be able to do it. What do you mean? Like people like Mick Gordon, like the fact that he, like if you listen to the doom soundtrack, yeah, you can hear the influences all over it. But at the same time, he's created like this unique sound that is, you know, you need to be artistically creative to, to do that. But at the same time he was able to reach a deadline.
0: Yeah. So he's like a freak. And I mean it the way that you would call like an Olympic athlete who broke a record or something like someone who has skills and talents and abilities that are beyond even our high achievers, like someone or, or like, you know, a bodybuilder with like freakish genetics or something like just that's I consider that to, when I say freak, that's what I mean. Can
1: you talk talking X-Men freak, aren't you?
0: Yeah, that's ba- basically like... Yeah. A po- I, for me, it's a totally positive connotation. But uh, the so I think he's probably a freak in that he got both sides of the brain wired up, <laughs> both the craft and the art and is able to reconcile the two. Right. That's super rare, super, super rare. But I bet you Hans Zimmer's the same way.
2: I mean, I, I'm, I'm friends with Guthrie and the way he talks about Hans Zimmer's music is just phenomenal. I talked to him a lot back in the days when uh, Evanescence were about to be on tour with orchestra because we had this album called Synthesis out in 2017. And it was literally, well, th- the mainstream would call it Evanescence plus orchestra. But we didn't do the same thing like, for example, Metallica did. You know, it's, it's not rock band plus a little bit of orchestra in the background. It has been more like we stripped down the songs, took out the rock drums, took out the distorted guitars and just left the pure core of the song, right? The melody, the idea of the chords, like like some programming. And, and then we replaced all that heavy analog acoustic heaviness with uh, orchestral arrangements. And what we did was we added, it, it's kind of like, um, imagine David Guetta and Beethoven go to, like they join forces and go to the opera. <laughs> so it, it was kind of really interesting to realize what that does. It, it's It's a different warmth and a deep, mighty warmth when you are on stage with an orchestra. I loved it but it's also been one of the toughest touring times of my life because you don't jump around, you don't sweat. It's just it's just different. The vibe is more quiet. It's a concert, not a show. It's different. It's like a this giant, beautiful depth of performance, but it's not running around and rocking out. And before that happened, I talked to Guthrie because he's been doing the Hans Zimmer gig for quite some tours then.
1: I'm jealous of that gig that he has. <laughs>
2: and then he he was like, well, you have to find your very own unique way how to make your existence matter in this production. And I'm like, interesting. So if I just do what, what the production demands of me, I'm going to be sitting there mostly bored, not playing. You know, I, I, doing these concerts, I hardly played power chord. A power chord was even too many notes. So what I had was on my Line 6 Helix pedal, I had like this oscillator sound. And what used to be like an awesome, fun riff, like... It turned into this one note. And then second note. (laughs) That was all that was going on. I, I saw that coming up at me and I'm like, This will put me into the biggest depression of my life. This is not fulfilling at all. And then I I, I talked to Amy. I'm like, hey, listen, how about I play the theremin? And she's like, oh my fucking God, this is fucking freaking amazing. Do it. So I had like four, five, six months to learn how to play the theremin. I bought a theremin. I learned how to play it. I I, I had the Moog Theremini, which is a little bit easier to play because you have this... This, uh, uh, what, what, what is it called? You can literally move it from woo to woo. So it was a little bit easier programming the steps and everything, but it had amazing sounds. And I was like, I'm determined. I'm going to make this work. I'm going to play the theremin. And also what I found out on this tour is that um, usually, you know, every band works with backing tracks and everything, but it was just Amy singing. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'll sing more now because we don't have all this, the backing track stems, the big choirs and everything. Like I ended up singing so much and I, I knew I created this workspace for myself for this tour period because I knew if it's just guitar, it's it's not going to satisfy me as a musician. And so I played a little bit of guitar with all these freaked out, delayed, oscillator, bit crusher sounds But I also played the theremin and I also sang a lot. I think sort of that was what Guthrie also meant when he was like, you have to create your own workspace, your comfortable workspace for this product, this project, this tour, this whatever it is. And... I just really opened up my eyes and I'm like, okay, I have to come up with something because otherwise I'm not going to be happy with it. And the last two tours <laughs> we did was in the States together with Lindsey Stirling. Average audience was like 20 up to 25,000. And it was amazing. I had a great time. And what I really enjoyed the most was singing with Amy. That gave me more joy than playing single notes on my guitar. The The singing with Amy, the the reading her Body language, how she inhales, how she's going to how she's going to phrase this next part of this song, how she's going to attempt like to do this verse and and just like really trying to use my quality of my vocals to make her vocals, support her vocals and make them bigger. That was the biggest and most beautiful part of the tour for me personally. Odd enough, it was not playing the guitar.
0: (laughs) So this is interesting to hear because I know a lot of people who listen to the podcast A lot of them would love as a career goal to be hired by a band, Uh, a success. Don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) Yeah, just quit now. Just quit now.
2: Sit in the basement, play your instrument, enjoy it.
0: (laughs) You're not going to stop the ones who want to do it, though. But the thing that I've thought for a long time, just like with being a producer, if you want to be a good producer, you need to learn just about every instrument, at least a little bit so that you understand it. I think part of being a musician, a guitar player or whatever, who gets hired by a band that has a lot going on, it's great if you're a great guitar player. Obviously, that kind of goes without saying. But the more stuff you can contribute, the more valuable you can make yourself, the more integral to the show you can make yourself, the more things you can do, the better.
2: Two things about this. First of all, to replace a band member, and I keep saying that in a lot of interviews, um, to replace a band member is one of the hardest things ever. If you are a healthy, good family band, um, meaning, first of all, you have to find somebody who who knows his craft, right? Like, to find a good player. That is the easiest because I, I think, like, the planet is stuffed with amazing musicians. Like, everybody is so talented. The second thing is you have to find somebody who has the cool to commit to that lifestyle, like, okay, I'm going to be away from home for two and a half months. Okay, I'm going to live on the bus. Okay, I'm going to play in front of 2,000, 20,000, 200,000 people. And that really shrinks the list down. That is taken from Hired Gun, the movie Hired Gun, because Rob Zombie said it, and he's so fucking right about this the third criteria is you have to find somebody who you actually can stand to be around yep. 24/7 because think about it i mean the show that we do is 90 minutes what about the other 22 and a half hours every day you got to hang out with these people you got to you got to be private with these people you know they 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 enter your private comfort zone because you're living on a bus together and that just literally shrinks the list down to a couple, a handful of people. The human aspect is one of the most important aspects when it comes to replacing a band member. It's, it's very, very tough. I mean, for me personally, I, I had to... Terry Balsamo, I, I met him once and I remember feeling completely, really awkward because I didn't know where to put myself. You know, my my band, my family was completely friends with the guy. Which is beautiful. I think that's such a beautiful thing because he he was treated with so much respect and so much love that he deserves. And that was a beautiful thing for me to see how Amy and the guys would like walk up to him. But then on the other hand, I felt like this fifth wheel. I'm like, where do I put myself now? Like, this is completely weird. And I remember he was hanging out in, in, in the dressing room in the backstage area. And and I just walked up to him like, Hi let me just introduce myself to you. Hi, uh, I'm Jen. It's kind of like, well, I have your job now. <laughs> and it was <laughs> awkward. It was really awkward. But he was so sweet and so nice and so humble. And and we talked a little bit and I'm like, you know what, if you're cool with it, I would love to take a picture with you just to show the world that we're cool. Because we were cool. We were talking a little bit and of course I don't have this connection to him like like Will, Tim and Troy because these are the boys and they've been touring with him for ages and but I just I just walked up to him and I'm like hey come on let's be cool because you know we're human and and I'm just done with feeling awkward because I don't know what to do (laughs) so we took this picture and it's it's one of the most beautiful moments, not beautiful, but one of the most important moments ever since I joined Evanescence in 2015, I think.
1: I'd say there's a fourth one as well. You know, you have to be a good musician. You have to be willing to sacrifice basically comforts and then you have to get on well with them. But I think it also extends a little bit beyond that as well. And it's like, you know, you sort of showed that you could, you were willing and wanted to play other instruments as well. And it's the diversification of people.
2: I think as a musician in general, it always helps to understand other instruments. Um, it does help even if you're just on stage and you watch other people play other instruments. But for the case, I'm like programming, you know, I go into my DAW and I program some string section parts it helps to understand a little bit how that instrument works, whether if it's drums or strings or, I mean, I think every musician sort of knows how the piano works. I've always tried to make like a little bit of each instrument like appeal to me so I can understand it because that helps when it comes to writing. You know, you wouldn't necessarily write if you go, for example, like like a bass part. You wouldn't naturally go like... You don't write like that for a bass. Hopefully. <laughs> and there's a certain kind of range for all the orchestra instruments, like violins, viola, cello, you know, upright bass. They have a certain range of notes. And your DAW and your programmed instrument, MIDI instruments, they don't tell you that. That range is your MIDI keyboard, but it's not the real range. So let's say you write something and you, you come up with orchestral stuff and you write something for upright bass and it's just like... No fucking upright bass player would play like that. That would be part for the violas or the violins. I mean, there's a certain limitation to the height of the note. So you wouldn't write like over that. And I think I I really believe, I mean, I learned how to play the violin. I learned how to play saxophone. I learned how to play drums, piano, bass flute, all all kinds of instruments because I just want to learn and know what's that instrument because I truly believe that you learn from every instrument and it helps you when you create music. And by the way, just right before this um, talk right now, that was the first time this year that I felt creative and I sat down.
1: And we ruined it. Is that what you're
2: saying? Yeah, it's kind of like, I'm a little bit worried about the lyrics, though. The chorus has some odd lyrics, and I'm like, maybe not so mainstream. I mean, you could always change them. Yeah, but they're so good. Well, then why worry about it? Okay, so here's the lyrics for this song that I've started writing just today. The first day, like the, what is it? The first, second of December? Second of December. In this horrible year that Gemma Jura sits down and tries to come up with, like a cool riff, you know, like cool. I have my drums programmed and I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. And then I, I, I just take my headphones and I'm like, okay, now sing something on top of that. And what comes out of me is let me live inside your testicles to recreate <laughs> my existence. Let me crawl back into your uterus to define me new.
0: <laughs> Why I changed that.
2: That sounds perfect. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, what, are you trying are you, are you trying to get it played on Top 40
2: radio? Absolutely not. I never write music with that. All right, so who gives a shit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I've just been listening too much to Devin Townsend lately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. I, I never write music on, well, I did. My first album that I wrote, well, I was sure, but I wasn't, I guess I wasn't self-secure enough to just, believe and and go for what my guts tell me so I thought I'll do a compromise I'm gonna write but I'll also keep in mind what people expect me to sound like and that was a big mistake I mean this is never what you should do as as an artist like doing compromises meaning of like limiting yourself in what your creation could be is not what you should do and the second album in Zenity I was like you know what here. Here's my right middle finger. Here's my left middle finger. I'm going to show you that I can do this. And everybody was like, yeah, you can't put like, you can't put out an album with one acoustic song when everything else is like full blown, like production. I'm like, sure I can. You can't put out an album with one instrumental track and the rest is like with lyrics. Sure. I can. Who the hell says you can't? A lot of people. Well, they're wrong. There are a lot of people out there. Exactly. They're wrong. And then it comes to like defining the style and genre of one song. And I'm like, well, okay, listen, I have this, I have this song. It's literally a pop country-ish, lip sort of verse. But then there's the solo coming and it's Jan Serfeld uh, uh, of the band Panzerballet. Oh, yeah. He's a good friend of mine and we worked together and he played the solo on this song in Zenity, the, the title track. And I knew that Jan is crazy, and I, I I love his music. I I really do. So I was like, okay, do you want to play the solo? And he's like, yeah. So I told my bass player, yeah, just change into like a like a walking bass. And the whole song, the whole thing just turns into this, out of a sudden, it's jazz. You know, and I talked to Felix Lehrman, our drummer, and I was like, go ride, just ride. King, 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 king. So the whole vibe of that song changes with the solo, and then it goes straight back into like a like a, like a head-banging death metal part, and then it goes back to the poppy verse. And I remember back in the days when I, when I had the demo for that song, everybody was like, "You can't put that out. You can't. This is too shocking. This is too much. I'm like, "Fuck you, I can) <laughs> Do whatever you want.
1: Yeah, exactly. Do whatever you want. I mean, one band that always like reminded me of what you just sort of described was a band called Candaria.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I know of them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They were like uh, mixing hip hop with jazz, with metal, with pretty much all of it. I think that the moment that you try and do stuff like that, it sort of breaks the rules and actually progresses
2: everything more forward. I love that. The whole thing comes down to one question. Like, when I listen to music, I don't limit myself. I would listen to. Like if you if you look into my playlist, you would find Arch, Enemy, Lamb of God, the creator, that kind of stuff. But you would also find Lady Gaga, Taylor Swift, you know, Rihanna, these kind of pop starlets. And then you would find like bands like The Beatles, uh, Led Zeppelin, classics. And then you would find the fucked up stuff like which I listen most to when I'm at home, like Free Kitchen, Panzer Ballet. Spock's Beard, uh, a lot of Frank Zappa, you know, Rush, a lot of that demanding stuff to listen to. So if I listen to all this great variety of styles, why would I limit myself and 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 force myself into this one genre box when it comes to writing? I think that was totally back in the days when, when people had to rely on labels. You know, they had to be functioning for the labels. That is totally old school. And by now, you have so many options in, in creating your creation that I think it's, it's just wrong to limit yourself.
0: I think that when people are writing music and they're thinking about how other people will take it, there's a fallacy built in because there's, first of all, no way that you can accurately predict how everyone's going to take it. And whoever you're imagining taking, like listening to your music is not a real person. It's like a figment. It's a figment of your imagination. You're thinking of the public as like some hive mind rather than a series of strangers whose tastes you don't even know and whose tastes you can't predict. And even if you were to write something thinking this group is going to like it and you might be kind of right, there's going to be a group of them who are always unhappy and wish that you did something else. And so, yeah, no matter what you do, you're going to make somebody unhappy. And so (laughs) it's kind of a pointless exercise
2: when i when i put out in Zenity in 2017 i was sure the whole world is gonna hate it <laughs> i put it out and I'm like no one will understand and get it everybody's gonna hate it but you know that's that's me like that album is literally you know how you usually have on one on your album you have that that sour spot where you go like ah, i could have done better and within Zenity, for the first time in my life, there is no spot where I would go like, oh, I could have done better. It's exactly what I wanted it to become. Sound wise, mix wise, uh, booklet, design, artwork, everything is just exactly how I want it. And that makes you like sort of vulnerable is the wrong word, but it's like a soul stripte. You know, it's this is me. This is purely me. No compromises, no, you know, hiding things, no making things nice there that are not. It's just me. That's me. And I love the fact that I really pushed through the whole thing and created this album the way it is because normally you don't enjoy listening to your own music i, I don't know about you guys but when i write music i'm, I'm so sick of my own music <laughs> after it's done i'm like ah okay great i have an album awesome put it into the cupboard put it into the shelf awesome stay stay there don't don't play <laughs> but insanity is an album i i actually enjoy I would listen to it in my car. It's,
1: you know, it's because like, I think the moment that you like, as they all said, you know, it's a fallacy thinking that all these strangers, like trying to please people that you don't know the taste of. There's always going to be kind of like a disappointment there. But as long as you're happy with what's created, then people can love it. People can hate it. And it doesn't really matter. Do you know what I mean? It's like, because you wrote the music for you.
2: Yeah, totally. Exactly. That That's what I mean. Like you create art for your heart and your soul because that's inside of you and you have to like, let go of what's inside of you. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't artists, uh, artists, artists out there who just produce products. <laughs> I wouldn't call that music because music is always like.
0: It's like product with musical effect. It's like a musical product.
1: A band is just a, um, a t-shirt merchandiser
0: that plays music. I'd call it a tchotchke store.
1: <laughs> yeah, if you think about it, like, like the way that, you know, artists make music now, it's mostly off merchandise and selling that on tour. So the music is kind of almost to a degree when it gets to, you know,
0: The upper level, I'd
1: say.
2: The written music to get people to buy your merchandise. That's what you're saying,
0: right? Yes. Yes, the music is a commercial for everything else.
2: Yes. Uh, I would like to quote a Metallica song, Sad But True.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Good song. (laughs) Sad but true, but also great that people
2: figured out a way to still make it work. Exactly. I mean, you could could translate that to 2020. Great that people still sell online tickets for live streams. Right? and still figure out how to make this work. I mean, I, I, I am fully aware of the fact that I am in a very lucky situation with the band that I am allowed to be in. And I see a lot of my colleagues struggling and, and really, really struggling. And this is where I
1: reference Interstellar, where we've got to learn to adapt.
2: Yes, exactly. We have to adapt to the situation. And I personally feel the pressure more than ever to just think one step ahead than anybody else. You know, everybody else is like, I did these one minute gems. Um, It started out as a a joke, (laughs) really as a joke. I was on the phone with my friend Kyle. Kyle Hughes, he plays drums for Bumblefoot solo band and Marco Mendoza solo band. He's from Newcastle, UK.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, Kyle. I'm
2: sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And we've been talking on the phone, like just, you know, talking, blabbering. And then I was like, well, I, I really feel the need, like everything feels so dark and heavy and, and suppressing and it's like I really feel the need to to put out something light uplifting something positive positive. and he's like yeah let's do this let, let, let's do a positive cover song and then we came up with blame it on the boogie jackson five and he's like yeah let's get another let's get a third party involved and I'm like cool Ellen from the side project that I do next to Evanescence like something on 11 and I was like hey would you like to play guitar and do a little bit of background vocals and he's like yeah sure I'm in so we did that And I swear on that day when I when I released that first one minute jam, I had no fucking clue what this would turn into. And if I look back now, because I started a couple of weeks ago to stop this whole thing. I started to stop. (laughs) I stopped this whole thing a couple of weeks ago because it just turned into so much pressure and so much work. But when I now like with a certain kind of like distance, look back onto what I've done that's insane. I don't even know how I did that. I mean... Well, you had to. I had Richie Kotzen, Gus G, Alex Skolnick, Rob Marcello, Joel Huckstra, um, Rude from Within Temptation. Ah, Rude. So many great players. And on the drummer section, even even worse. I mean, worse in a good way. <laughs> I think it, it was, of course, Felix uh, Lehrman who who played my solo album in Zenity and also played something on Eleven. Um, Felix was there. Uh, then I had Alex Landenberg, Then I had had Mike Mangini, Mike Portnoy, um, Mike Tirana, and and even Nico McBrain. <laughs> Why did you stop it? Nico was the turning point. I'm like, where do you go from having Nico McBrain of Iron Maiden in your one-minute gym? What do you go from there?
1: I don't think it's necessarily about, you know, the 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 bigness of the actual, you know, artist. I think just more the fact that it was you were doing something that was cool.
2: I know. And I know that I created positivity. And I created a very nice little community that would share positive thoughts in the live chat and everything. And and it was a lot of fun. But the fact that just killed me in the end was the premiere every Saturday would take place, you know. And, and I think the last one was Andy James on guitar. Fucking amazing musician, Andy James. Kyle Hughes again, because I thought like, well, he played the first jam. He's going to play the last one on drums. It turned into this kind of work. As soon as music feels like work, like this burden, you have to be functioning, you have to deliver, it stops being fun for me. And I'd rather just go like, well, that's the last one minute jam for 2020. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not going to revisit the whole idea and just not continue, maybe next spring or summer I don't know Uh, but for now it was just like also the fact that everybody focused so much on online live streaming I mean I I know every fucking single living room of all of my colleagues by now it's just wrong (laughs) and I don't I've never felt comfortable with being just another sheep in the herd you know as soon as I realized like everybody does that now even though they don't do one minute jams
1: it's about finding your own little niche, isn't it? I like, think that's one thing that the lockdown has allowed quite a lot of people to find, find, actually. And this actually goes on to my point of, we were talking about, you know, the different stages of what you need to find with band members. And it's like the diversification that we're talking about. And it's like the the, the lockdown is like sort of allowed. Well, yeah, it's doing that, but it's allowed all these musicians to actually like, cause you know, some, some of them have been doing this for like 10, 20, 30 years, but it's given them a point where they can sit back and say, Hey, what else am I actually good at as well? You know, live streaming, it's one of those things that people really want to, Well, when I was growing up and, you know, there was bands, it was, you know, you only saw a picture of them, the album cover. And then when you saw them live, you didn't know anything about them.
2: Yeah. It was this mysterious thing, the band.
1: Exactly. Whereas that doesn't really work anymore now. It's like the only band that really can get away with that is bands like Tool. And even to a degree then you can still, you know, you can subscribe to Adam Jones on uh, Instagram and, you know, see what
0: he's doing now. And his beautiful hair. But
2: the times have changed. So back when I was a kid, like just started play the guitar, you know, I was a big Bon Jovi fan as a little girl. There was no way that I could get a hold of Richie Sambora.
1: No, he was in he was in a he was in arena band, wasn't he?
2: (laughs) And and now look at look at us. I mean, I can literally send whoever. I mean, John Five or or Mickey D. I can send them just an Instagram message, you know, and mostly they would reply. And that takes away a little bit of the mystique of that rock star. It does. But, but what I feel is that the times, I mean, the kids these days, they grow up with uh, that awareness of you can reach out to these people. And if you out of a sudden can't reach a person, that immediately puts the person into a very arrogant light. You know, it's it's not cool to be mystique anymore because the kids don't know the mystique. They grew up in this environment where, where it's completely normal. You know, you can just like comment on the person's profile. It's just, you know, I can reach out, no problem. And I miss the times of having this fandom. Well, I do not talk about Evanescence fans because Evanescence fans are just mostly crazy and out of their mind and beautifully lovely. It's hard to find nowadays people who are fans, You know, I teach, I I own a little music school and I teach, when my guitar teacher back in the days asked me like, hey, what's your favorite band? I'm like, oh yeah, I love Bon Jovi, I love Metallica, I love Slayer, I love this, I love that. And nowadays when you ask that question to a kid, they go like, I don't know. And you go like, well, do you have a song that's cool right now? Like, what song do you listen to right now the most? Yeah, there's this one song, but I don't know the band or the title. (laughs) Well, you know, I think
0: the mystique is there in different ways Um, but it's certainly not in our genre so in our genre the mystique is gone but there's still ways that they do it in pop music like for instance the way that Billie eilish wore all baggy clothing um, she created a mystique about her body image which is a huge selling point for her and for what she was trying to promote and she's still accessible to fans and still acts as though she's one of them she doesn't even call them fans but she still keeps a part of her that most pop stars don't completely hidden from view. And, uh, and so she holds on to something that nobody else gets. So I feel like nowadays, the mystique, you have to actively decide what part of yourself you're not going to show other people. Because if you just completely disappear, it's not only that you're going to be called arrogant, it's that you're going to be committing career suicide, in my opinion. Because if you pull back, people forget about
2: you. Yes, exactly. A a thousand percent agree to that.
1: There is, however, a couple of bands in metal that can still do it. One is Ghost,
0: only because they have an older audience and they've been around for a long time.
1: You say that, but then there's the band Sleep Token that doesn't have the older audience, but have created this mystique around their band. I don't know if you're familiar with that band.
0: I, I know exactly who Sleep Token is, and let's see how long it lasts before they reveal who they are.
1: Well, I already know who they are,
0: but well, I'm I not know who say they are it. too. <laughs> but I'm saying let's see how long the mask thing lasts before they reveal who they are in public. Yeah. And let's see if that whole thing, first of all, I think they're awesome. And I think there's always room for exceptions. Like, right? Ghost was an exception for a long time. I
1: actually think that the Mystique thing has allowed those bands actually to to do that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah,
0: but that's one band. Those are the total exceptions. Those bands, Ghost and now Sleep Token, those are the only bands. Like back in the day, every single band had Mystique. Every movie star had Mystique. Celebrities had Mystique. Mystique. Yeah, exactly. Now you're, we're naming Ghost and Sleep Token. We're naming two bands out of the tens of thousands of bands in the world. So yeah, of course, there's still going to always be a few here and there. Like Daniel Day-Lewis, for instance, is a mystery as an, as an actor. Rarely does interviews. No one really knows where he lives. Like personal life is a mystery. He appears, does the best acting on earth, disappears, not a part of the Hollywood system.
1: Where what what film is he in? I can't I can't picture his face right now. For real? Yeah, I can't think of who he is right now.
0: There will be blood. Gangs in New York. Okay, yeah. Now I know who you're talking about. One of yeah. the best actors in the history of the world. It just doesn't get better than there will be blood for acting. Anyways, my point being that yeah, so there's for every one of him, there's like a thousand other celebrities who have to be all over everything in order to not just disappear. And so it's not its not so much that like, like I don't see a point, in, I'm not saying anyone here is complaining, but I know a lot of people who do complain about it. And I just don't see the point in complaining about it because you're complaining about the thing that ensures your survival. If you happen to be one of those artists, one of those few artists who somehow manages to pull it off to where you can be a mystery and still accomplish all your goals, then fuck yeah, <laughs> more power to you.
2: Well, wait, there's like, two ways to look at it. I mean, creating that mystery about your persona in public is something different than just like not being active on, let's say, social media. That's a different thing because uh, the not being active on social media, for example, Then um, I've been thinking about this a lot the past days because, you know, I, I'm a human. And I have this reputation of always being like uplifting and positive and, you know, positive gender, whoop, whoop, become a better person. And I love that. And that's what my core is. But that doesn't mean that I am a human that doesn't struggle from time to time, you know, and I'm struggling I, and I'm done with pretending that I'm fine and smiley and, you know, I'm having a good time when I'm not. I thought about like really cutting off a lot of my social distance presence. The thing that keeps you posting on Instagram is, first of all, you're you're being addicted to reactions of people you're being addicted to seeing the likes you're being addicted to see who's commenting on your post which is like a mental sickness to be honest that's what social yeah. i don't know if you guys have seen the social dilemma
0: well i haven't seen that but i'm aware of the studies that show that uh that we trigger dopamine hits exactly when
2: we do that. and we are triggered to that and the other thing is your ego your ego tells you Oh, as soon as you don't post, you're going to disappear. People lose interest of you. And we live in a fast paced world. Yes, I get that. But then still, on the other hand, I, I don't believe that I'm going to disappear just because I'm not going to post on Instagram for two months. You're not. Exactly. But my ego tells me, oh, you have to post every three days to be still out there and be happening and be have people talk about you. You know, I actually
0: think that if done properly, because I've thought about Instagram strategy a lot you know unless you're the rock or that type of celebrity <laughs> yeah i feel like that kind of celebrity has to do it for financial reasons and there's there's a lot of stuff going on that doesn't go on in music but uh i think that if you're a musician who has a dedicated following they're not going to forget about you in two months i think that this have to post every 3 days or 2 days thing is especially true when you're building
2: your name in that case we talk about consistency That's the same thing with uh, being consistent on YouTube. You want to become a YouTuber, post consistently. That's what builds your brand, your name, your product, whatever you want to do. You have to be consistent. But now, I don't see like my likes falling apart (laughs) just because I don't post every three days. Because to be really honest, I'm a person like I like to post when there's something going on in my life. What is going on in 2020? Nothing. And I totally, what I really, really, really feel horrible about is when people post live pictures. Oh, throwback to 2019. <laughs> I miss playing live. Do you miss live shows? Why do you even have to point this out? This doesn't change the situation. This doesn't make anything better. <laughs> All it does is channeling negative energies. I love all my friends, but when they post shit like that, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm getting pissed. I'm, I'm like, why do you have to do this? It doesn't change anything. It doesn't change the situation. It doesn't bring magically back all the concerts and touring. And it doesn't. All it does, is just like, everybody goes like, oh, yeah, I miss that. Negative, negative, negative. <laughs>
0: yeah. So I wanted to actually ask you, uh, you know, the perfect time to ask. Since uh, you just played guitar, is uh, what what are you doing guitar wise? Because I know that we've talked about writing, but like you got to be doing something to keep up. I cook and I knit socks on the guitar.
2: <laughs> no, really, I, I mean it. I've ever since I started playing the guitar at the age of six, I, I have never ever had. A year or a moment where I would play less guitar than I do this year. Really, it's scary. And I, I turned down so many offers for guest solos because I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm just not good right now. I'm out of practice. I just know. Since you've been playing so long and so
0: seriously for so long, I think it's one of those things that uh, even if you, you're like, you know, 10 percent under, you know, 10 percent rusty or something like that, how long do you think it would take to get it back? Like two weeks or a week, a few days. Two days. Yeah. So no big deal.
2: Your fingers remember, and and your body vibe remembers. But it's just that I feel very uncomfortable these days. Like when people ask me to just, hey, can you play really guest solo on this? And I have no problem because I, like I said, I'm done with pretending. I'm I, I'm gonna reply. I'm gonna like listen. I feel like I'm out of practice right now because of this year and the way this year went. And I don't feel comfortable with playing. And it's scary to me because I've always had that drive, that bite, that urge, you know, like, ah, oh, I want to play guitar. Sometimes I would wake up in the morning at 8 a.m. and I'd go like, oh, I want to play guitar. That doesn't happen anymore.
1: Is it because of the uncertainty of what's happening?
2: Well, the uncertainty is the overall killer of the whole thing for, for the mental health. because you know, if somebody would tell me, hey, listen, you're in a tunnel right now, right? Um, but there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel in, let's say, eight months, right? Yeah. Um, I could totally arrange myself with being comfortable in the tunnel. But all these, for example, live streams, l- purchasing tickets for live, pre-recorded live shows and shit like that. Um, that is literally what what that is, is arranging like a... <laughs> It's, it's arranging yourself in the tunnel, not even knowing if there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And that just kills my my spirit and my my creativity. And I really believe that if we all would have like this one point in time where somebody would tell us like, hey, everything's going to be back to normal in February, March, April, wh- whenever, it would help a lot of musicians to not struggle, yeah.
0: Except we can't. Nobody can honestly do that.
2: I know, I know, and that's that's why we arrange our lives in the tunnel.
0: Let me ask you something though, because you've been at it a long time. We've all on this podcast been at it a long time, and my dad's from the music industry, and so I remember ins- the instability in his career in the '90s and '80s too. And so my perception of the music industry, even though there's never been a time where it just Grinded to a halt like this, but I remember several times where things got really crazy. In that there was a time period, you know, you know, this time period where uh, people thought that labels are going to disappear and the and that's all going to be over. I and mean, that was a crisis. There, there's been a few crises, and uh, and maybe they weren't like this, but at the moment we didn't know that because every crisis is, you feel it relative to what you know. So at the time. It feels like the worst thing that could be happening because you couldn't imagine the twenty twenty version of it. So anyway, my point being that uh that instability is kinda is don't you think that's kind of part of
2: the game? Like is there ever truly stability in music? No, absolutely not. But it's 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 the matter of how deep you are sucked into the shit pile. You know, if if you're sucked into the shit pile like regular like let's say like Elbow, waist high. That's normal. Okay. <laughs> but like 2020 is kind of like only the tip of your nose is sticking out and you're like suffering to still breathe. It's 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 the matter how deep you're sucked into the shit pile. Fair
0: enough. But I guess if your nose is sticking out, you're still breathing. Yeah. I don't know. It uh, Like, I agree. I hear everything you're saying. Uh, like, obviously.
1: I think it also is down to the position of the... Because obviously the music industry is such a vast and open, like, you know so many different people doing, you know, they could be guitar players, but they're doing completely different things. And I think it just depends on the position that you are within that industry.
2: I totally agree because I mean, where I come from, like my first real band band was my ACDC tribute band, all female girl ACDC tribute band. And back in the days with that band, I would, you know, I would sit in my car, load the van, uh, do all the contracts, uh, uh, find the promoter after the show, being exhausted, trying to get the payment. And, you know, it's it's when you know where you come from, it's, it's always, I think it's always a good thing to not lose perspective because nobody, in my opinion, or in, at least in my book, is worth more just because they play in front of 20,000 instead of 200 or 20 people. Because all we are is musicians and we try to give our best and do our best, the amount of audience doesn't make you better, more valuable human or musician. That's that's bullshit. That's when you get a big head and that's when you should like really reconsider. But I think, um, you know, it, it, if I'm like in a mid-sized band, if I would be in a mid-sized band, this Corona year would have hit me way, way harder. I am just lucky to be able to call Evanescence my band and I'm really thankful and grateful to be able to be in that band because it gave a certain kind of like security but i see a lot of my friends who just struggle so hard that they they couldn't pay their rent anymore they had to move back in with the parents and that's that that happens and it's it's just a very very challenging year let's call it challenging it's not bad but it's challenging it is bad but i like to call it challenging because all we do is have to come up with we have to be innovative. You know, we have to adapt. We have to come up with ways how to make things work. And even for for example, like, um, I mean, this Saturday, like, we have I I don't know when this airs, but we have um, a live stream going on, um, pre-recorded live stream, and people can purchase tickets, of course. And, uh, you know, y- you work yourself into the situation that life throws you in.
0: Question. So... Inspiration aside, you mentioned in the pre-interview that you think it's beneficial to simply exercise the songwriting muscle. Uh, can you talk about your 52-song exercise or other challenges that you set for yourself to stay in shape? I want to hear about that.
2: Okay, well, it's it, I, I believe after having that experience of 50 songs being written in a certain amount of time, I um, just believe that it comes down to what is your inspiration, first of all because inspiration can be all sorts of things you know inspiration can be a cool drum beat it can be uh, a movie it can be a quote it can be a smell it can be a picture it can be a story that your friend tells you it's inspiration is literally everywhere it's up to you to find out what that inspiration is y- you know it's it's you can be inspired by almost everything. Like I open up my Instagram, I see a, a, a post that's inspirational. Um, I look outside my window, I see a woman walking by with two big dogs. That's inspirational. You know, whatever. It's, it's like you have to find out what the inspiration is. And for me personally, as a songwriter, I, I have to have a feeling, I have to have a vision and that creates the tempo, the groove, the vibe, the riff, but I have to feel something before I start playing. And then I don't sit down and go like, okay, well, I want to write something sad today. So I will use these intervals and these chords to make it sound sad. That's not how I write. I, I just have to have a feeling. And then I just put my hands on my instrument and just play. And then that's what like, it's it's like your body becomes your outlet of turning emotions and pictures and smells and situations into notes, into music.
0: So you're not like thinking about it. You experience the stimulus, the inspiring stimulus, and then whatever comes out, comes out.
2: Exactly. It's a matter of how open you are to all kinds of inspirations in your daily life. And then I just, I really just feel a certain feeling and that feeling creates, you know how you can, in reverse, you have that option to listen to a certain kind of music. If I listen to Him, for example. (laughs) The 2000s band, H-I-M? Exactly. Hardigram. (laughs) Him or or Sisters of of Mercy, you know, like that. I will feel like this. I have black clothes on, I'm pale. I I am this Gothic person, I, I suffer through life. I'm gonna feel like that just by listening to the music. If I listen to Slippery When Wet by Bon Jovi, I'm gonna feel like, yeah, party, yay! If I listen to Billy Eilish, I'm going to be like, yeah, duh. And all of that music creates ideas, emotions, pictures. That is what music is for, for me personally. I think music is that thing that turns somebody's thoughts and emotions into something that can be heard by somebody else that will create his or her own imaginations from that. And that is the beauty of the whole thing. I just need to have that emotion or or picture that emotion inside of me. And that will turn into whether a groove or a riff or a lyric line, you know, you never know. And when you constantly do that day after day after day after day, I go like, oh, well, here's my coffee brewer. And it goes like... Whoa. I'm like, oh, cool, groove. You know, <laughs> you never yeah. know. It's just you have to be open minded about the influences that could trigger your
0: creativity. You start looking for it everywhere, or you start seeing it everywhere, hearing it everywhere.
2: I, yes, that's more like it. I start seeing everything. And I'm like, whoa. It's funny
1: how people don't listen to other sounds outside of the music that they want to write. Because, as you say, like, you know, like listening to your coffee brewer and it makes a certain rhythm. Or you listen to the doors opening on a train, and it makes a certain rhythm.
2: By the way, on my new uh, on on the album of uh, Something on Eleven, we just released it November 13, and there's Congrats. one song. There's a a sound of a door that shuts in the end, and <laughs> it's uh, at a music store of a friend of mine called Rockland, and Andy Timmons was doing a clinic on that day, and I I just had to go pee so. <laughs> And then the door made this insane noise and like, whoa, I have to record that. You know, musicians are always walking with the voice recording option on their phone. And and I recorded that door. I didn't know where to put it, but I was like, whoa, this door is just like. It's it's insane. So I recorded it and we put it at the end of the uh, uh, of one song. And if you listen to it really carefully. You can hear Andy Timmons talk in the background. So, hey, now I can say I'm on a song with Andy Timmons. That's pretty badass, isn't it? Fuck, yeah.
0: (laughs) So out of curiosity, say that there's a vaccine, it comes out today, Evanescence books a tour in five days. You got to get your shit back together. What do you do on guitar to get yourself back up to fighting shape, basically?
2: I can play, and I did it. A couple of days ago, I just sat down and I took our latest set list and just played through the songs just to see, you know, like our last Evanescence show was September 20, what, 26th, 24th, 26th, the end of September last year. That was the last Evanescence show. And I haven't been playing these songs ever since. So I was just like, play them. <laughs> you know, do, do I still <laughs> remember? I was like, well, let's give it a try. And I did. That's muscle memory. You know, what I, I was just like completely comfortable and like, "Oh, yeah, sure. that song, oh yeah, sure. that riff. I don't think that would be like like a a big problem, to be honest, because I mean, I've been playing these songs so much within the past five years. But what challenges me as a human and mu- a human musician is that I for myself, I feel like, you know, my my fingers are getting weak, my tone is getting weak. Um because I am out of practice, I feel like I could have played this with so much more like sass and balls, but I don't. That is the really scary point when it comes to playing music, not playing Evanescence songs, because that is in my in my blood. That's in my heart, in my in my in my core. I don't even have to think about it. But if if you just improvise, you know, you, you sometimes go to YouTube, jam tracks, something, something, just play along just for the sake of fun. And I realized that my ideas are shrinking. Um, my, my, my tone is not gone, but it's not where it could be, you know? And just being aware of the fact how great it could be and how it sucks ass right now, it's just, that is the toughest thing right now. And of course I could like force myself to sit down and, and practice, but, and then here, here we are again. It's like the input the stimulation is missing.
0: Yeah, but say hypothetically, the input's not missing. You have a tour in five days and you want to have your tone back. What do you do? Because you said it would take you two days to get it all back. So
2: When I said two days, I, I'm speaking of this getting the tone back thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too.
2: This is very complicated to talk about, to not sound like an asshole.
0: You don't sound like an asshole.
2: Evanescent songs don't make me play on the edge of my level. You know, it's, it's, I can do that. It's fun. It's beautiful music. It's beautiful songs. And I, I enjoy singing and playing. And, but it's, if I, if I do one, one of these, um, I have this playlist on YouTube called Gemma Jura Plays. And if I do a one one minute 30 cover of Oblivion of the Winery Dogs or Living the Dream Aristocrats. I sweat. I fucking sweat. And I I just really work on that because that's fucking hard to play. I did a cover of the song Pig of uh, Sex and Religion, Steve Vai with uh, Devin Townsend. And I remember, man, I was on on my couch. I was about to go to bed, you know, Thursday evening or Tuesday evening. I don't remember. And I was like, just ah, check your Instagram once more. And then it said, Steve Vai himself has tagged you in his post. Fucking cool. What the fuck? And I'm like, wait, this is got to be like, this is wrong. My Instagram is broken. <laughs> so I went on to his, his post, and what he said, he discovered my cover of the song Pig. And he was like, I would have never thought that somebody would sit down and figure out how to play this. Not even I really remember. And but Gemma Jura of Evanescence mastered this work piece, blah. And I I looked at it. And I'm like, is this is is this really happening? Like for real? <laughs> I think that was last year. So I was like, oh my God. And he shared it on whole, all his social media. And that was insane. I mean, the video has like clicked like crazy on my YouTube channel. But if I cover stuff like that, I put in a lot of tone playing technique, investment. You know, I don't so much when it comes to playing power chords for Evanescence. Makes sense.
0: That that reminds me of what
2: Andy James I said. I do not want to talk down the music of Evanescence because Amy is a beautiful songwriter.
0: Oh, you're not talking it down. This is what Andy said about playing in Five Finger or Gus said about playing in Ozzy or whatever, that what makes them do such makes them able to do such a great job is to have their ability be so far beyond it that when they do play those songs, they can own them and they can really perform them and they, can, they don't have to think about it. They can do the best job possible. So I don't think it's talking down to it at all. It's showing that.
2: I just don't want to come across like the music of Evanescence is so easy because it's yeah. not. You know, we have this one song. <laughs> it's called All That I'm Living For. And the whole song, it's just da 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 it's two chords the whole time but then here's the thing with evanescence there comes the bridge and i believe that bridge has like i don't know what 17 chords (laughs) and it's it's just it's just ridiculous you you play that song almost falling asleep because it's just two chords it's so easy you know it's so smoothing it's like "Mm, i got this Mm." and then you go like shit okay wait Oh fuck, bridge. Okay, wait. I have to switch on brain. Okay, here we go. Like 17 different chords. Which which chord is the next one? Oh, oh my God, oh my god. And then you go like oh, bridge. <laughs> the change is another song like that. It's it's like completely structured, but there comes the bridge with all the odd chords. And the way Amy makes these chords work together and and you know, like merging them together with her voice and the melody, and it's just I think, personally, I think that's phenomenal. I would love to add random chords and just make them sound amazing. Just by the way I I handled the melody on top of the chords. That's fucking genius. I tried it with the testicle song, but it didn't really work. Yeah,
0: (laughs) You know, I think that uh, any music is difficult to play well. Like, it doesn't matter if it's more simple or more complicated or whatever. Like, to actually play something well uh, is a challenge in and of itself, in my opinion. So, and we've talked about this on this podcast a lot. Like, uh, the perfect example is like uh, Back in Black or whatever. A song like that is super, super simple compared to a Devin Townsend song or whatever. But if you hear people try to cover it, it, it's a joke. Like they can't, they can't fucking do it.
2: It's all about the groove. As soon as you groove and you connect with your bandmates, that is when you get the audience. When everybody performs for themselves, it's nice to look at. It's nice to listen, but it's not, it's not touching you. I still think Malcolm Young has been one of the most underrated rhythm guitar players ever ever. I agree. And when it comes to singers, for example, I mean, ACDC have these two periods. There's the Bon Scott area was kind of like, Bon Scott, his voice, <laughs> yeah. He had this crazy <laughs> kind of voice. And Brian Johnson is way more, <laughs> but more rhythmically than, than you know, Bon Scott was. So they have this two opposite kind of vocalists. But when it comes down to the to the core of the band, drums... And rhythm guitar and bass, it's so simple, but it's so good because it's not overproduced. It's not overcrowded. It's just a pure definition of groove for me personally. That's, that's just my opinion. And that's I why agree. I love the music of ACDC so, so much. But you have a lot of fancy days because, hey, Pro Tools, you can have like 164 tracks. Let's do more vocals. You know, it, it all gets like overproduced and people lose the, um, I feel like a lot of people, a lot of musicians lose the focus on what's really the basic. I would venture to say they never had the focus. I don't know. I don't know about that. Maybe they had it, but they lost it because of options, because it's it's human to just think like, oh, this is an update. I have to do it. This is going to be better. Oh, hey, I have more tracks to use. I got to use it. That's better. I think like a lot of musicians fall into the trap of, wow, I have so many options. I got to use them. That doesn't necessarily mean that it makes your product better or your music better.
0: I completely agree with you. I actually also believe, just going back to what you were saying before, I actually believe that groove is way more difficult than people give it credit for it doesn't have a, a flurry of notes it's not as impressive looking it doesn't you know it doesn't like uh appeal to our visual senses as a human and so when we see sweet picking and someone playing guitar behind their neck and doing all that bullshit like not that it's bullshit but all that bullshit they're wowed they're wowed and they want or they want to go do that stuff too but Groove is really it's not sex I mean it's sexy when you hear it, but it's not like sexy to pursue it and it's really, really hard to do.
2: You can't you can grab it, you know, you can't picture it. You can you can take a picture of like take a photo of groove. You can't. And it's a feel thing. That's why it's so complicated and so hard to reach. Will Hunt, our drummer, once said one of the nicest things ever. I was in the band for like I don't know, maybe half a year. And I remember during soundcheck, he once went like, you know what? Slowly this band becomes a real fucking kicking ass live band. And and I didn't understand what he meant back then, but it's it's all kinds of little things that come together. Like Evanescence has been a performing studio band for a long time. You know, they, they would perform to the front, to the audience and... I I grew up come on like mimicking Angus Young so I, I was just like all over the place and that was disturbing for them first and I realized Troy sometimes he, he our our guitar player he was he was just like whoa what are you doing here on my side we're like what the fu- what the heck is going on it was weird for them to have somebody jump around on stage because they were so used to being on this one spot you know And everybody was sort of like for themselves. And I know that this was expected of me when I joined the band. I think that was expected of me. But I'm like, I'm too much of a whirlwind. I just can't just stand on one spot. So I was like, I'm going to go to Will. I'm going to headbang with Will on the drums. Yay. I'm going to move over to Troy and just go headbang with Troy. And that whole interaction changed the way the boys and I um met groove wise you know because you you your interactions build up that groove that you have together as a band
0: yeah it's like you find the pocket that's unique to your chemistry
2: exactly yeah exactly
0: brown you have that with your band in what in what what sense well you guys are like a fucking groove factory yeah that is a nice compliment. It is, isn't so, it? Yeah. It's the truth it's the truth though.
1: <laughs> it's it's so, something that you can't really teach someone though. It's one of those things that you kind of have to experience for yourself and then the word groove kind of extends beyond one person's belief in what groove is. Do you know what I mean? It's it's so personal like you know there's certain songs that you listen to and people are like dancing all to it and then you get one person that just doesn't understand it. Right. Like, um, I remember the first time, I mean, sugar the first time I heard him, I had no, absolutely no fucking idea what was going on. And I remember it really well. I just <laughs> like all could, of us, like all of us. Yeah. I just could not grasp it. I just couldn't understand it. But then after listening to it for a couple of months, it just one day, it just clicked, and all of a sudden this is the best thing I've ever fucking heard. So it's, it's just something that you can't teach. You know what I mean? It's like you have to experience it to understand it. It's a feeling.
2: You can't take a picture of that feeling. You can't explain it. You can't teach it. You you have to, like you just said, you have to experience it. And groove is such an important thing because when a band really is tight together and grooves, this is like the ultimate goal. At least for me, I'm like, yeah, I'm happy. <laughs> You know, this is my place, of my state of mind of happiness.
1: (laughs) But then again, I've never played that ACDC riff properly.
0: There's that.
2: (laughs) No one ever does.
1: No one is except about Malcolm. Yeah.
0: But here's what's interesting to me about your example is uh, you are a very different musician than the other guys in your band. How so? Okay, so say that we're talking about a recording scenario, riffs, right? You, Ollie and swanny are going to have three different ideas of the groove for the riff right oh, it's yeah. going to feel three completely different ways if uh the three of you record individually so that said being that that's the case that groove is a very individual thing how do you guys get past that live to where you still sound like a fucking unit
2: yeah but you create that moment in the studio
1: yeah that's actually that's what it is so in a in a studio situation, obviously you're underneath the microscope. And I guess to a degree in a live situation, you are as well. But in the studio, you get the option to choose what you want to do. Whereas in a live situation, you're only going to be milliseconds apart, aren't you? If, if that, as long as you're tight. So the groove, well, I would say that the drummer sort of orchestrates the groove when it comes to the style of music that we play. But I think in the style that we do, because I play very behind the beat, So I'm like, I'm waiting for that snare drum to hit. I'm waiting for the kick drum um, to hit as well. So I'm always ever so slightly later than those, um, you know, just a little bit behind. So um, yeah, I think it just, uh, it's a really hard thing to explain, isn't it? Because obviously we've played with a bunch of different drummers over the years and even playing the same songs with a different drummer
2: Feels totally different.
1: Feels, yeah, completely different. Like, for example...
0: And you had great drummers too.
1: Yeah, 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 of course. And it's nothing to do with someone not being great or anything. It's that individuality of the groove. It's where they place their pocket. (laughs) Like, uh, like for example, with Alex Roeninger, he's stupidly on the beat, but it made the songs feel almost like I had to keep up, if that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas... When I play with Mike, it feels like I can sort of sit back and relax and, and go into the pocket.
2: Yeah. And even that will change the, the groove and the vibe of the song.
1: Exactly. It all depends on, and yeah, it's like milliseconds apart and you've changed it from being pushy to being groovy. Mm-hmm. And it's literally less than a few, it's, it's less than milliseconds.
2: I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I, I've played my solo music with a lot of different drummers and Ah, oh, it makes such a difference. I, I think, like, really, I honestly believe a band can only be as good as the drummer is. 100%.
1: 100%, yeah. The, I mean, if you th- it's like a house.
2: Our Will Hunt, our very own Will Hunt. Will is one of the... First of all, he's an amazing show drummer. You know, he's, he's just doing an amazing job. And the way he sees music, there are two types of drummers. They're the ones who are counting out how much... How many bars is the verse? How many bars is the pre-chorus? How many bars is the chorus? And then they're gonna just like perform this scheme of you know calculation. And there, then are then we have these kind of drummers like Felix Lehrmann, Will Hunt, who play musically because they have a, a wider understanding of music than just counting numbers. They they Felix Lehrmann, for example, he his favorite music is Divine, Eddie Van Halen. I'm like, dude, you're my man. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck this is amazing and he he plays he plays the song in a musical way, not in um I'm dividing the song into separate parts that I'm gonna repetitively play, you know, he's playing it dynamically, and that's what I really love when it comes to drumming that you do not count bars of different parts but you play dynamically to the song whatever the song demands and that, that's a thing that i think um a lot of musicians shall listen to by heart and perform um play for the sake of the song not for the sake of your ego
1: that's also goes into it i think with groove in a way
2: <laughs> totally yeah yeah I mean, you you can feel awesome about yourself as much as you want. If you don't connect with the band, it's not gonna groove. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you you can shred as as fucking crazy, Momstein, whatever. If it doesn't connect with people or your band, it it it's just not. It's Like it didn't even happen. That's that's. I think that's one of the biggest advices. A lot of interviews people ask me, like, hey, do you have any advice for young up and coming musicians? Play for the sake of the music not for the sake of your ego. Yeah. That's difficult to explain to some people. Right? True.
0: Yeah, because uh, you need some ego, but I, I agree. It's difficult to explain to people because they don't realize when they're playing for the ego a lot of the time.
2: Most of the people don't even know what their ego is.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: Because they hear this in a voice and they go like listening to it and they don't realize it's that part of inside of their character that is the ego. For example, like, Steve Weiss said that once. You can put out music and 500 people tell you how much you contributed to their lives and how great you are and how awesome that is. And then the ego tells you that one comment where somebody goes like, you suck. This is going to destroy you. That's your ego telling you, oh, pay attention to this one comment. (laughs) So difficult to block that out. You need to rise above that. Rise above that ego that, That little voice that talks to your subconscious mind and just be thankful for that you're able to do what you do and be thankful for the experiences that you can have with music, whether if it's groove or soloing or whatever, or playing for the sake of the song. It's just awareness. And I think the ego takes a lot of that away. So I'm still working on that. I think it's it's a lifelong thing. Totally. You, you will never totally beat the ego, but that is like the biggest thing that will be your companionship <laughs> for for the longest time and you you will struggle with that because it's it's a given i I feel like sometimes it's a given um and you just have to overcome that and that's like a life task to overcome the ego well it's it's just true
0: that it's a uh... I feel like uh, one of the big problems that I have noticed is that too many people lack self-awareness. So the ability to work on that isn't even there because without self-awareness, you're not going to be able to work on that. So, but I think self-awareness is kind of the key to getting through life in a, in a better way because uh, well, in through, general, in general, yeah. Well, self-awareness and also awareness of the people around you and uh, how they're feeling. That's uh, it's huge. Which And it's hard for artists because uh, some of them are so inwardly drawn and uh, just a little bit narcissistic that they have a real hard time understanding that there's people around them who uh, have lives of their own and feelings of their own. And uh, those who do understand that and uh, use that knowledge will tend to do better in the world, less miserable existence.
1: There's actually a word for it, what we just spoke about. Oh, yeah? It's called Sonder. It's actually the latest Tesseract album. Yeah, the word sonder means the understanding that every person has a life as complex as your own. I see. Interesting, right?
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, I I get that.
0: You guys have never heard of that word before, I guess, though, right? No, but I think about the concept all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, Jen, you said you get it, but I think a lot of people don't. I think a lot of people don't even think about it.
2: Oh yeah, no, definitely not. I agree too that a lot of people don't think about it, but if they would think about it, I'm not necessarily sure that they wouldn't get it. It's just a, the lack of thinking about it.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's just, that's all it is. So that said, we have um, some questions, have a couple of questions here from listeners. They're not bad, nothing crazy. Yeah. <laughs>
2: well, who's who's listening? Where, where
0: are they listening? Well, they're not listening now. They're going to listen when it's released. Aha!
1: (laughs) Imagine if we were just streaming this live and didn't tell her.
0: Okay, so question from Adam Steele. Jen, how are you getting on with the new Ibanez Pia?
2: I love her. She's the love of my life. I'm going to get married to her in 2023.
0: (laughs) You set the date already?
2: The 17th of June, 2023.
0: Congratulations.
2: Thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So next question is from Vaughan Treboulay. I've seen you talk about how you use the Line 6 Helix in some videos. Can you talk a bit about how you design your tones, especially the super ambient stuff that you sometimes need in Evanescence?
2: To be honest, like my Evanescence sound on the Helix is I still use tube amps. I'm not a big fan of modulating amp sounds. I'm just not. I'm old school and as long as I have a crew or as long as I have the muscle power to carry tube amps, I'm going to carry tube amps. So what I literally do is I connect my Helix with the, uh, you know, like FX loop and I add a little bit of chorus and that's it. <laughs> All the rest is guitars and fingers. You know, it's, it's, it's for the solos, of course, a little bit of delay and, you know, reverb and shit like that. But, um, my major sound is just one channel. That's it. You know, Line 6 asked me to put out my my, my amp, like, you know, the programming of, on the Helix, like the setting and everything. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. This is too embarrassing. It's too easy. <laughs> but that's, I think like the tone, what you play comes from your fingers, not from the device you use. I agree. And th- it's just so hard to make this that statement understandable for people because a lot of people believe it's it's the amount of equipment you stack in between of your fingers and the speaker but it's not it's it's your fingers and your attempt and your emotion and 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 the sass when you play that's the tone it's not the effect xyz and uh I mean, I have a couple of songs where, for example, the change with Evanescence, we have there's a lot of delay going on, like ping pong delay, and uh, and and like moody stuff, like like for example, um, uh, "Made of Stone." There's a it's like oscillator sounds and 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 stuff like that. But that is the outstanding. It's the norm for me playing in Evanescence. It's just my typical tube sound. And I use Synergy amps and I have the the HPE Harry Brown Eye um, uh, pre-amp module. And that's the sound. And whatever is on top that makes me, me is what I do with my fingers and the way I I play with my pick. It's not an effect. It's not an app. It's, it's just me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's very disappointing. I know. Sorry for the disappointing answer,
0: but no, it's not a disappointing answer. I love People it when guitar players that. tell the truth.
2: It's it's that's what it is exactly.
0: <laughs> we want guitar players to tell the truth. Like it's important that that gets out there because uh, it's. I feel like too many guitar players waste too much time looking at gear and trading gear. I mean, unless trading gear is like their passion in life, but like. They spend more time looking at gear than they do practicing. And that's craziness.
2: Look at it that way. So if you're a guy and you want to, I don't know, you want to find a hot girlfriend, you buy a super expensive car because you think that'll work. It's the same thing with guitar players. <laughs> I'm going to get more gear, more apps, more stuff. And then I'm going to be a great guitar player.
1: We should call this the Mr. Smith syndrome
2: syndrome. it's just a shift of priorities the priority should be your instrument and your craft on your instrument instead of whatever you can buy as an addition to you know uplift your playing instead of like oh my only focus is like what can I buy to make myself better it's bullshit people it's bullshit
1: if people understood this then there would be a million people at Riff Hard
0: (laughs) Well, give it time. Give it time. They'll work it out. Well, Jen, I want to thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure meeting you and talking. Thank
2: you guys so much because I really enjoyed this talk.
0: Man, tone in the fingers. She's so right. Yeah. It's it's one of those things
1: that takes you years and thousands of dollars of wasted money to actually realize it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's funny because we just had that conversation yesterday. With Jake. Yeah, we did, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, about how there is some gear that will make you actually sound worse. But that aside, tone is in the fingers. And the sooner that people realize that, the sooner they get better.
1: Yeah. And also, I don't think it's necessarily the... I mean, obviously, that is shit gear. There's no denying it. But I mean, when you listen to Joe... There's a video of Joe Satriani, and he's playing through a practice amp, and it still sounds like Joe Satriani. So it's a case of I think it's not necessarily that it makes you sound shit. I think it's just down to preference.
0: Yeah. It's down to preference um and I guess when you say stuff like Joe Cetriani sounds like Joe Cetriani no matter what it's like yeah well that's Joe Cetriani. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know if it's the I don't know if it helps the argument or hurts the argument just because most people aren't that good. So that's yeah true. So it's almost like well, you're comparing, you're comparing someone that plays little league against someone in a on a major league team or something. However, yeah. at the same time, it kind of proves the point that it is possible to sound good through stuff like that if you are good. So yeah, don't worry about if you have a crate or then that's all you can afford. Worry about getting better. Exactly. I remember when we went on tour with uh, the Acacia Strain, DL, their guitar player then, had a crank full stack. And uh, not a huge fan of cranks, but man, his tone was fucking monstrous. And then I tried to play on his uh, rig and it sounded like shit. But he would play and it would just be like fucking devastating. And a perfect example and you told me the same thing with Glass Cloud.
1: Oh, yeah, dude, Josh. We need to get him on this podcast. He is probably one of the most underrated guitar players in metal, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, he's phenomenal. Yeah, and, you know, like the people that know him know him. You know, he's he's got a very unique style, but his tone, like it's, it's the first time back then anyway, where I'd heard an Axe effects tone that was just completely devastating. It didn't sound smooth. You know, like when you hear an Axe effects sound and it's just like really mid-rangey and smooth and safe. Do you know what I mean? It's like when you go into a homeware store and you see that every vase and every towel and, you know, every bed linen set, it's just safe. You know what I mean? That's yeah. kind of how I hear the Axe effects um, a lot of the time. But with Josh... It was just, it was like my face was being peeled off. <laughs> I felt like Nicolas Cage and John Travolta at the same time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what What a duo.
1: <laughs> do you remember that film? Oh, yeah. Fucking I terrible. I remember that
0: duo. By the way, do you know that Josh r- recorded all the rhythms for that Immure album he did in one take, the whole album? What? One take, the whole album. What? Yeah, I, I know this because we had them on Nail the Mix, and uh, this is the story that was being told to me. And I don't think people would be lying. Is this
1: Carson Slovak, right?
0: No, it was uh, Wizard Blood and uh, Jeff Dunn.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. That was it, yeah. So I'm thinking Carson did a different album by them, maybe. I don't know.
0: Uh, maybe. Maybe. Not this one, though. But, uh, yeah. One take. He one-taked it. He one take the full album on both and then did the other side in one take. That's
1: fucking obscene. Yeah, like, I thought it was obscene that he wrote Danza 3 in three weeks. You know, there's an, there's another version of that album that he sent me and I wish I still had it, but it wasn't on the nine string. It's when he still had seven and it was tuned higher and it had a different vibe to it that was also really cool. Um, but yeah, the guy's a machine. Like once he gets into it, he's just phenomenal. And that I think it's just a perfect example again. that tone is just in the fingers. That guy just, he sounds angry.
0: <laughs> yeah. Thank God he's nice.
1: Yeah, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, because I wouldn't want him angry at me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God he's like the nicest guy ever. Yeah, he is. Yeah. So we have a way to help people get the tone in their fingers better, don't we?
1: Oh, yeah. Many different things on the site. In fact, actually, the whole site is practically focused on that.
0: Tell me a little bit more about it, though.
1: So one of the things that I notice about a lot of guitar players is, is that they're so focused on their... Their fretting hand, that they kind of forget what's possible with their picking hand. And I'm talking about stuff like playing at different velocities and stuff like that. You know, a lot of guitar players when they're focusing on all these different techniques to like, you know, do eight-finger tapping or or, you know, something like thumping or something like that, they're not really thinking about what is possible with the picking hand. They're not thinking, I can hit some notes harder to create accent points or anything like that. And it's and you notice it when they play a DI track back that there's not really any consistency in it. And, you you know, you've recorded probably thousands of guitar players as your time as a producer, AL, and you know, you can visually see which guitar players are good and which guitar players needed the work, right? Yeah, well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Based on the DI track, you can just look at it and you know straight away.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like, there's no, there's... There's no way around it.
1: Yeah, there isn't. So when it comes to what we're focusing on at riff hard to get the tone out of the fingers is making you find your potential in your picking hand and actually really focusing on the picking hand. If you think about it, the last point of contact before your guitar reaches your amp or your modeler or your plugin is the picking hand. It's the full information. It's, it's the attack and it's the strength of the note. And, A lot of the exercises on Riff Hard, we're actually focusing on getting the picking hand to be the strongest it possibly can be because that is the tone
0: right there. You know, one thing we talk about at URM a lot is uh, pick choice.
1: Yeah, that can affect a lot as well.
0: Pick choice, pick angle. Like, man, so many little things that are, and how much does it cost to change picks, right? Compared to changing amps.
1: Yeah, Exactly right. <laughs>
0: yeah, like there's so many things you can do to your guitar tone that are free or cost a few cents. Yep,
1: yeah, you can do that as well. I mean, like I've been kind of limited with my pick choice and it's mainly to do with how the material of the pick grips my skin. And I know other people have the same problem with other things such as strings. You know, some, certain people have really high acidity.
0: Yeah, but you know what? You're one of those guitar players who has earned the right to be a bitch about pick choice.
1: Yeah, I know, and I've used the same pick for years.
0: Yeah, if I'm recording Brandon Ellis or something and he doesn't want to use a pick I suggest, then he then Brandon Ellis uses the pick he wants. However, that doesn't mean I'm not <laughs> going to suggest, "Oh, use a heavier pick for this part. Use a lighter pick for this part. Tremlos sound better with this kind of pick."
1: Yeah, of course. And that that goes without saying. Um what I would be limited to is mainly the material. And I just find that when it comes to My finger grip, I personally prefer that nylon max grip just because I know that I can rely on it not flying to the other side of the room. (laughs) Not to say that I wouldn't try another pick. You know, there's been many times when I've used Tortex picks and it's been completely fine. But I just noticed that when I sweat, so I kind of just naturally gravitated towards that and I enjoy the sound that I get out of it.
0: Dude, but I'm sure that you, if you were in the studio with a producer you respected and they were like, man, this room sounds great, but please... Why don't you just try this Tortex pick? Oh, yeah, of course. You you wouldn't be like, fuck you, man. I use the nylons. Fuck you. I'm 16, <laughs> daddy. I'd do what I want. Like, you wouldn't do that. You would at least give it a shot.
1: Exactly, completely. And probably what I would do is drill some holes in the Tortex pick to get my grip back. <laughs> In fact, why why have I never done that?
0: That's a good question because drilling holes in picks sounds like a pain in the ass.
1: Well, it does, yeah, but then, you know, you know, just uh, someone will do it, right? I mean, they've been done before. I remember I had a pick actually that was was a Tortex pick and it had holes in it, and I remember loving it. Um and yeah, and I lost it and then that dream was
0: uh was crushed. I'm sorry for crushed <laughs> dreams, dude.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but like obviously the pick, the angle Um, where you pick as well like another thing that people don't think about is like they they go to palm mute and they don't really think about the fact that if you push your hand further back you're going to get this more thumping ringing out palm mute whereas the further forward you bring it to the bridge pickup you're going to start getting a more metallic sounding palm mute or even just where you actually pick in between your pickups makes a huge difference into how your guitar is going to sound. Because if you pick more over the bridge, then you're going to hear that attack more in the bridge pickup, especially if you're, you know, playing rhythms. Yeah, it's like all these little things that no one really thinks about because they're too busy trying to play as many notes as fucking possible.
0: Yeah, and that in and of itself is a whole other conversation.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, I, I could talk about that all day, but we won't. We'll just say the at riff hard we're focusing on all these important things that will make your tone better and make you a better rhythm guitar player and if you're a better rhythm guitar player that means your lead's going to be better because you're gonna have better phrasing
0: people will like you better you'll get better jobs make more money you're gonna make fat stacks yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right john it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure man i'll see you next week